Welcome back to I Cry at Work. I'm your host, Carrie Ann Cashon, a recovering corporate American and former work crier. I know I haven't addressed that as being the title of this podcast, but that that really is why I titled it that way. It's because I used to cry at work all the time. And not like alone, not by myself. Sure, that's how it started, as anyone's work crying journey does, behind the door of a bathroom stall. But as I climbed the corporate ladder to more and more exposure, so did my tears. Crying in front of more and more people at work, with every promotion. It was, it was a lot. One could say excessive. The audience of my tears. And I'm not just talking about close work friends or something. The friends that are at the same level of hierarchy in the company that encourage the other one to keep taking shots of the company Christmas party like it's a good idea. No, my tears work for equal opportunity employers. God damn it. They don't discriminate. I'm, I've cried in front of anyone from direct reports all the way up to the CEO. Yes, seriously. True story. In the workplace, I have cried <laughs> in front of not one, not two, but three different people with the almighty title of chief executive officer. Four, if you include the title of president. In the place of work. It's got to be a record number, right? It's got to be. I wonder if I could get a Guinness World Record for that. How does one go about acquiring a Guinness World Record? Because my only reference is that episode of Hey Arnold, where they try to set the record for the biggest pizza. So I guess I'll just go rewatch that episode on my VHS. Oh, it's actually six if you include people with the word chief in their title, like chief financial officer and marketing. But I couldn't help it. Like, I'm sorry for having some empathy in my soul. I couldn't help it. I would try so hard to keep it all together and not show emotion in corporate settings, but just couldn't pass the test. I wasn't capable, which is why I dropped out. And you know what happened after that that's funny? I stopped crying so much. Ironic, yes? And I know what you're thinking. But what has that simple fact about an improvement of a human's well-being done for business productivity? Tell me you're a Harvard MBA finance bro without telling me you're a Harvard MBA finance bro. Well, I am happy to announce that I have decreased my time crying on the clock by over 700%, increasing worker productivity by 7 trillion and 9 basis points. We are proud to have delivered value to shareholders at a record level of three cents earnings per tier. Kind of joking, kind of not. I pretty much never cry at or about working anymore. I don't really cry in general anymore. But you know what's been the most surprising to me about my great resignation? I actually find myself kind of wanting to go back sometimes. And I do not mean in the same way of that bullshit propaganda that is circulating right now about how everyone's regretting the great resignation. Let me fill everyone in. No one regrets it. <laughs> no one's regretting this decision. And it's all from like one bullshit study that when I actually looked a little bit into, it was basically like people saying they miss their old work friends. 
Okay. They might miss their work friends, but they do not miss the uncomfortable comments that your boss's boss always made. No one's regretting it. But I mean wanting to go back in the sense that I want to work and don't mind working for someone else. Because I'm still working. I'm just solely working for myself. And maybe that's why it's surprising to me is I've always been very entrepreneurial. As a kid, I was always starting businesses and selling things. always had an eye for business opportunities. So much so, over the years in elementary school, I noticed a trend during the first few days when we went back to school. that Some kids didn't have all the right school supplies when they needed them, which as an adult, I now realize is probably highlighting a bigger economic issue. But so in fourth grade, I was going back to school shopping with my dad. And he never looked at the list and just trusted me to get all the necessary things. And being the child capitalist I was, naturally, I quickly abandoned my moral compass entirely and betrayed that trust and doubled the amount of everything on the list. I got doubled. So if it said I needed two erasers, I got four. And he didn't notice or ask questions. As you know, this is before Sarbanes-Oxley. And then I sold all that extra school supplies out of my locker during the first week back to school. Carrie's Locker. Probably my most successful childhood venture, I would say. Probably because I had no cost of goods sold. Sorry, Dad. You know how kids always talk about what you want to be growing up? Well, when I was a kid, I asked my parents what they think I should be, what would fit my personality. Always important to gather input before making big decisions like that as a child. Right up there with which Disney character band-aid to pick at the doctor's office. It's a tough one. Elsa or Anna always comes down to it. And my parents always answered that question, like, without hesitation, saying I'm an entrepreneur, that I would be a great entrepreneur, that I'm already an entrepreneur making all these businesses as a kid, that I am an entrepreneur through and through and should be as a career. But as a kid in the early 2000s, entrepreneurship wasn't really a thing. We were years before Gary Vee led the rebrand of entrepreneurship. So that wasn't an acceptable answer in my mind. That wasn't a real career. I couldn't be the loser kid walking around telling the other kids about the fake job I had in the future, using a word that 99% of the country's population doesn't even know how to spell. So I kept bugging my parents to give me another answer. And they just kept saying, like, Carrie Ann, you are such an entrepreneur. That is what you should do. And I kept bugging them to give me another answer. And finally, my dad got just so defeated and annoyed. And he was just like, I don't know. I could see you as a stockbroker. And I was like, finally, a real job. I'm going to be a stockbroker. As an eight-year-old child, walking through the halls, telling everyone, I'm going to be a stockbroker. That is a true story. And then I grew up and realized Dave was right. I really am an entrepreneur. But I actually commend his consolation round pick. Since I, I do enjoy finance and numbers and data, he was pretty close to the mark. But I'm not a stockbroker, just an entrepreneur with a day trading habit. So when it came to resigning from corporate, when I looked back at why I hated it, why it was so stressful, why it burned out, why I was crying all the time, I just chalked it up to being because I wasn't supposed to be there in the first place. That corporate isn't a place for someone truly, truly entrepreneurial. 
which can be true in a lot of ways. Mostly frustrating, but definitely there's some truth to that. But I really believe the problem was that I just don't belong in an environment where I work for someone else. And that's the part I'm starting to question. I want to work, and I am. But I also think I wouldn't mind working for someone else again. It just has to be the right someone else. And this brings me to what I want to discuss this week. The false bullshit narrative that is no one wants to work might as well be the goddamn slogan of the boomer generation. But as a reminder, this is also the generation that reposts chain messages on Facebook. Yeah. That reposting some paragraph in all caps, four exclamation points, seven commonly used words that are misspelled, by a strike of midnight, no time zone specified, is the only way to ensure Zuck doesn't make all your private messages public or things you've deleted out in the open. With this statement, I do not give Facebook permission to use my messages, both past and future. I give notice that Facebook is strictly forbidden to copy and distribute information based on this profile and its contents. Because that's how you manage privacy policies, obviously. These are people leading our country through unprecedented times. I know I bashed CEOs last week, but I actually do feel sorry for the ones in tech that have to go to those congressional hearings. These poor sons of bitches are summoned by law to go sit their ass in a seat, take questions about the internet from people that don't know how to use the internet. Answer said questions effectively and then be told that's not the right answer. They have to go across the country to answer questions from some old racist pricks, and then when the CEO's answer doesn't satisfy them because they don't know the basics of the internet, they act as though the CEO is the dumbass. Think about that. Even the wealthiest people from younger generations building multi-trillion dollar companies esteemed to the highest level of success in this country, still aren't immune from boomers telling you you're a failure. Trillion, with a T. They would rather ridicule you, explaining how everything is your fault instead of just learning some basic facts. In case you haven't seen how cringeworthy these are, here's a clip from one of my personal favorites, with the CEO of Google a few years ago. I have an iPhone. And if I move from here and go over there and sit with my Democrat friends, which will make them real nervous, does Google track my movement? Does Google, through this phone, know that I have moved here and moved over to the left? Not by default. There may be a Google service which you've opted into use. Uh, and it so Google knows that I am moving over there. It's, it's not a trick question. You know, you make $100 million a year, you ought to be able to answer that question. Does Google know through this phone that I am moving over there and sit next to Mr. Johnson? It's yes or no. 
I wouldn't be able to answer without looking at... Uh, Can't say yes or no. Uh, without knowing more details. So. so on brand. I like how he uses something that most people would say is like a indisputable metric to show success, which is your salary. And he uses that to say you're a failure. That was his weapon of choice. Because he had no other weapons. Because this guy has worked his way from the ground up through the corporate ladder, getting multiple degrees and just worked his way up to be the CEO. I don't know about you, it sure sounds like he pulled himself up by the bootstraps. These are the people saying no one wants to work anymore. And Kim Kardashian. And as much as I'm shitting on boomers right now, Unlike what they would do to me, I'm actually going to give them some slack here, believe it or not. Because it turns out, every generation has said this about younger generations. Documented all the way back to 1894. Yep. Some of you might have seen this, but there's this post that's going viral that basically shows all these newspaper clippings over time that say no one wants to work anymore. Starting in 1894, about workers in a coal mine because they were on strike. Yeah, what lazy pieces of shit for wanting their work conditions to improve so they could live past the ripe age of 24. Self-centered motherfuckers. What's interesting about this narrative is it always ends in anymore. Which implies there was a time prior to this in which people did want to work. Basically saying, my generation worked, but the younger generations won't. Just a bunch of entitled youngsters. Hmm, where have I heard that before? But if you think about it, saying no one wants to work anymore is really saying no one is motivated to work anymore. And when you frame it that way, the conversation changes drastically. Because when people say no one wants to work anymore, it completely ignores the fact that people have to work to survive in America. It's how we're set up. It's how the system runs. Sure, there are some exceptions, but speaking for the masses here, working isn't a choice. Us millennials are getting far too old to be suitable sugar babies. We have to work to survive. We have to do that activity to survive. It's the equivalent of saying no one wants to drink water anymore or no one wants to have a secure shelter anymore. They don't want a home, they want a tent. It's absurd. We all know this. There are things we need to survive, like water, food, shelter, and we have to work to secure those things. Until work doesn't secure those things. Cue the Chad Company of the Week. Kroger, the grocery store. Apparently, the largest supermarket chain in America. That's a really surprising fact. I'd had to double check. And second overall retailer behind Walmart, which I guess is a separate category from supermarket. That must require a lot of jobs, huh? It sure does, to the tune of almost half a million employees. Almost half a million human beings that Kroger is responsible for as an employer. How are those humans doing, you might ask? 
After all, they did literally risk their lives and own health during a pandemic to keep stores open so we could all feed ourselves. I think we all can agree that's very commendable. It was scary in those early quarantine days. I was literally afraid to leave my house. We didn't know how bad COVID really was. It was a scary, unknown thing. And Crowbert workers still showed up. That says a lot. That says a lot about their character. Kind of like these stats do about their deadbeat employer. Starting off with the most alarming, in my personal opinion, 14%. That is a one and a four next to each other. A double-digit percentage. 14% are currently or have been homeless within the past year. Yep. On to the next, 44% unable to pay for rent. Those numbers are worse if you're younger, like in your 20s, because they always are, to which 53% are unable to pay for rent. Over 40% have had to borrow money from family or friends to pay for basic expenses. And if that weren't enough evidence that Kroger is not responsible enough to care for their human beings. Adding insult to injury. 39% of employees are unable to pay for, wait for it, groceries. You know, the main product Kroger provides. With immense buying power in the market, helping them get some of the lowest costs possible. Because that's the thing about grocery stores, is I think some people would hear this and think, Grocery stores can't possibly make that much money at the end of the day. They can't make that much profit. And that's probably true if you're Paul down the street whose life goal has always been to open a grocery store. His passion for produce exudes him. But if you're Kroger, you make $2 billion in profit in 2021. With a B. So, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe... You should use some of that to pay your employees more and offer better support and be less shitty of a provider. And I get it. It wouldn't be wise to spend all of your $2 billion in cash to do that. But I don't know. Maybe I have just one of the billions. Can we just have one of the billions? But why would they do that? when they can spend that $1 billion to buy back their own stock, to artificially inflate their earnings per share to look better. Yep. For their grand finale in this douchebag talent show, Kroger pulled that bullshit move. They used $1 billion in cash to buy back their own stock. This is after they learned about all this information about their employees literally living in poverty. It was legit a PowerPoint slide in their boardroom. They had a legitimate meeting where this was presented way before they decided to buy their own stock. So this brings me to the point I'm trying to make. If you're working for someone and still have a high chance of being homeless, unable to afford food, when you work at a place that sells food and needing to ask other working adults for money to pay for those things, why would you work for that person? Please, someone tell me why on earth that is a wise 
decision to stay working for that person. If the only reason we work is because we have to secure those things, and working is at a point that no longer does secure those things, what on earth is motivating you to work? It's not fucking lazy. It's logical. It's the opposite. And this Kroger issue is really just one side of this no-one-wants-to-work story narrative. The side around providing a living wage, which is a really important topic, but I'm going to save the living wage conversation for another day. The other side of the no-one-wants-to-work story addresses more of the corporate, salaried, college-educated jobs where everyone is talking about one thing, employee motivation, how to motivate those employees. But here's the piece I think people are missing in these conversations, talking about employee motivation. An employee is one human with one human life. It's not a work life and a not work life, it's one. And every human enters into this world with one thing they have to give, that they will never be able to get back, ever. It is finite, and they will never get more of it. The amount of time they have in this world. And they get to choose how they want to dispense that finite thing into the world with the goal of maximizing the fulfillment we got out of this one shot at life. We want to make this the best ride ever. If we only get one ride on this roller coaster, we want it to be fucking great. We don't want the teacups at Disney World. We want the ones that loop and whatever. And I don't know. <laughs> the last time I was at an amusement park, it's probably wearing Abercrombie and Fitch with side bangs. And for the rest of our human life, all the actions we choose to take are motivated by trying to maximize the fulfillment we will experience from life. That is what motivates us. And in this little journey, first we have to make sure we maximize the amount of time we get to experience in this life. We have to survive. <laughs> Gotta make sure we're still here. Then we need to make sure we'll still be here in the future. Secure the ability to keep surviving. And once we cover those two things is when we can really start exploring the beauty of this thing we call life. We make friends. Fall in love. Spend time with family if your family's not terrible. In your community. Volunteering. Can find ways to help our other fellow humans. We can do things that make the world better for our other humans. Better than before you came into this world. And experience how good it feels when they appreciate you for doing that. Or just how good it feels when you feel they value your presence in this world in general. Those are the things that will make your life fulfilling. And I know this magical land sounds so spiritual and pure and like it's a quote from Gandhi or something. But if you haven't learned by now, that's not really my vibe. What powers the Carrie-Anne train isn't exactly rainbows and hugs as it is frameworks and Adderall. Is that beautiful philosophical land I just described? 
was just me describing an established psychological framework. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Another point on the board for my minor in sociology. Everyone knows what I'm referring to here, where it's a pyramid describing human needs. And the bottom has basic survival things, and it moves up to things like love, belonging, esteem. And you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, of course, I know what you're talking about. It has done so much for our society, really laying the groundwork for top-tier memes. The craftsmanship of the hierarchy of needs memes. Truly remarkable. A league of its own. But I'm bringing it up because if the core problem of the great resignation and work right now is employee motivation, maybe we should refresh ourselves on how to motivate humans. If only there were a scientific approach to doing that. Oh, wait. Maslow's hierarchy of needs was literally introduced in a paper entitled a theory of human motivation. I don't know how much clearer he could have been. What it wasn't titled is a theory of human motivation at work, and then another one that's a theory of human motivation at life. Even this guy, 70-plus years ago, knew work-life balance is complete bullshit, that it's just one human spending some of their time working and some of their time not and how that human is motivated to spend their time in a way to maximize the fulfillment they get out of life. But here's the problem. As a refresher, the theory is that you have to meet the needs of the lowest tier before moving on to the next, and then meeting those, and then moving on to the next. Now, you can't just skip around. You can't just pop around. That This is how motivation works. You have to fill those needs before moving on to the next climbing all the way up to the top to maximize the fulfillment you get out of life. Fuck. We have another hypothetical ladder to climb. As if the corporate ladder wasn't enough. And that humans are inherently motivated in their actions to secure each tier's needs so that they can reach the top of, let's call it the fulfillment ladder. This is why saying no one wants to work anymore is complete and utter bullshit. It's so fucking stupid because it has nothing to do with wants and everything to do with needs. And slowly, all across the country, people are realizing the decision to work is not helping me move up this pyramid of needs, this fulfillment ladder. It is not helping me win this video game. I can't make it past level two. And sure, I could talk about that in the practical sense, like I have in the past few weeks episode showing how it is getting harder and harder to meet the first and second tiers of this model of basic survival and security. But I want to address this in a different light this week that's a little more abstract. Because all of my practical recommendations that I've been providing all have one thing in common. Treating a human being with respect. Truly. It really is that simple. Not with better recognition programs, which, by the way, is the fourth tier, but 
just actually giving a shit about each and every human life that works for you. That is what would fix the Great Resignation. Seriously, it's called humanity. As if employers just started treating the humans in their care with some actual respect for that life. Because the vast majority don't today. How do I know that? Because if they did, I wouldn't need to get in front of this goddamn microphone to tell them they should make sure their employees maintain their disposable income each year working for them. Or any of the other recommendations, which I hope are helpful, but... But I wouldn't have to do it because it would already be happening. I also wouldn't have to tell you about UPS giving hourly employees a pay cut after their most profitable year or the Klarna CEO laying off employees with a Snapchat video. Because they wouldn't be pulling these dick moves. But they are, all the time. And do I think employers are inherently evil and are just out to screw us all and it's just all these evil people out to just burn society to the ground? No! As I've said, I'm a realistic business person. Instead, I think what the, what the real problem is, is just a lack of empathy from the leaders running these companies, which I think most people would already agree with. A lack of emotional intelligence, EQ. And the fact of the matter is, unfortunately, that doesn't just magically appear in someone's brain overnight. And it's not like all these company leaders are just going to mass resign in one big wave. Although I gladly welcome them to this club. So as a band-aid recommendation, here's what I got. For both the employer side and the employee side, I think we need to remind ourselves of the core underlying structure of working in America that I think we've lost sight of. It is an exchange between two parties. That is the basic underlying principle of how commerce works. One party provides something of value to the other in exchange for something of value to them. And I think we all haven't lost sight of the end of that equation that is the money piece of the financial piece that we are getting in return. Hashtag salary transparency. But I think where we have lost sight is the other side of that, which is an employee is providing something of value to them for this exchange. Like, yes, we're getting money. We have salaries, but it's not without something that we give in exchange. We're giving our time. Their time. The one thing they have in this life, literally, the one thing they have in this life that is finite that they will never, ever, ever get back. They're giving in exchange for this financial return. Because going back to the hierarchy of needs, that's the real problem here, is the ratio of time being spent to try to accomplish this thing we call fulfillment in life and where we're spending our time to try to accomplish that. We're spending more and more time at the bottom of this pyramid, often not even to meet the needs, when we'd love to be able to spend that time doing things closer to the top, like spending time with family and friends and community and maybe traveling, having children, parenting. And the more time we spend at the bottom, 
aka working, the less time we have to spend at the top. That's the real piece. That's the issue. When we choose to give up some of that time that we do value, that we'll never get back, to our employers in exchange for helping us climb this fulfillment ladder, we're inherently giving them control, or at least a good portion of control, in helping us reach the top. That's why we're making that decision, because that is how humans are motivated. Because we think it's going to help us reach the top. Not reach fulfillment at work versus fulfillment at life. No, just human fulfillment in one cohesive human life. When we have this exchange between what we value and what the business values, we are basically entrusting our employers to use that time that we gave them in a way that will maximize our ability to reach the top. It's just like people that manage investment portfolios, personal investment. Employees are giving up the keys to their employers to use their time in a way that supports them the most on their ability to climb to Mount Fulfillment. That is the storm that is brewing with corporate employees right now. Is we're giving up these keys to our employers. We're losing more and more control of the wheel. And they're driving the goddamn bus right into the ditch. Left and right. Even without me being actively in the corporate workplace right now, just outside looking in, I can see this tension with corporate employees building like it's a political discussion with your family at Thanksgiving. It's building, man. I can feel it. I can see it even from outside looking in. I really do think this is what will be the straw that breaks the camel's back if things don't change. Because, like I said, the living wage discussion is a different conversation for a different day, but the motivation we're talking about here is different. People that can still afford to pay for basic needs and maybe even have some savings or whatever that still got a 3% raise this year when inflation's 9 or whatever it's at now are really upset, are mad. And not because they still can't afford to buy things, unlike the living wage situation, but because they don't have control over that. Their employer does. They entrusted their time with their employer, meaning they gave up time doing other things they would prefer to do, like spend time with family, to use it in a way that will help them up this ladder, and they fucking fumbled. All these little things for these people. And it's the same with work from home. Because companies that are mandating back to office full time for literally no reason other than control. They're making people come back in. So on top of you just losing control in the first place as an employee in this exchange, you now have to give up more of your time to commute. And... You have to use the thing you're getting out of this exchange, which is money, to support this demand from the other side of this exchange. For $5 a gallon. 
like having to pay their legal fees to sue you. So the value of the currency employees are dealing is plummeting like the fucking Russian ruble earlier this year. That is why all this tension is building. It's because of the control we entrust to our employers with our time. One thing we have to give. And they aren't using it in a way that respects us as humans and our desire to live a fulfilling life. So, with that, I know this is much more abstract than I have been providing, but I'll wrap it up and say on the employer side, business leaders, just remind yourself your employees are entrusting you with their time that they will never get back, that they could spend in a different way that would bring them more joy. I guarantee it. So operate in a way that just respects that, that honors the fact that these people are giving you something they'll never, ever get back that could have been spent in a different way. And the more control you demand in this exchange, the more respect you need to dish. Because this is how humans are motivated. It really comes down to just don't be a control freak and treat them with some respect. It really is that easy. So when you're making decisions, just remind yourself, employees are entrusting you with something very precious that you should actually value instead of running it into the fucking ditch. And on the employee side, remind yourself that employment is an exchange. I know it's great to love working for certain people and having ties and having great coworkers, and I think we all love that, but it is an exchange for your time, which is finite. And you do, in a lot of ways, give control over how that time is spent to your employer of choice. So when you're choosing who to work for, <laughs> even to work at all, even if it's just reevaluating the relationship with your current employer, if you're kind of on the fence of if you want to go look elsewhere, stay and all that, just take mental stock of how much you trust them to use your time in a way that respects you and how much control they demand in that exchange. Because the more control they have, the more they need to respect you in your time. And I know that sounds very lofty and there's no scorecard or framework for that, but use your gut. Works pretty well for us most of the time. And remind yourself that work is an exchange for your time. And how much control from the other party in that exchange is an important factor to consider when who you choose to have that exchange with. This really is important, and I'm hopefully describing it in a way that makes sense. But that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, like, whatever the things are, all the things. You can follow on social at Workplace Tears and WorkplaceTears.com. Shameless plug. Got some merch going as well. But that's it for this week. I'll see you next week for another episode of I Cry at Work.